The Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. The Bennington Triangle is a geographical area in southwest Vermont where several people went missing between 1945 and 1950. It was named by American novelist Joseph A. Citro. This was made more widely known by two publications, most notably Shadow Child, in which Citro devoted chapters to the analysis of these disappearances and other local folktales. Citro asserts that the area shares numerous similarities with the Bridgewater Triangle in southeast Massachusetts. This mysterious triangle is said to be centered on Glastonbury Mountain and would contain some or most of the land of some nearby towns, particularly Bennington, Woodford, Shaftesbury and Somerset. However, it is unclear exactly what region is included within it. According to Citro's novels, stories of spooky events have long been told about the Glastonbury and surrounding area. Arguably the most well-known of them is the tale of Paula Jean Weldon's disappearance. Weird or What with William Shatner featured a discussion of the Bennington Triangle in Season 3, Episode 8. On July the 23rd, 2012, the programme titled Mysterious Vanishings debuted. The Redcoats, Episode 67 of Law, recounts the events of 1945 to 1950, and in the 2018 Paranormal TV series, most terrifying places in America, the Bennington Triangle was listed as one of the haunted locales. The five-year span of reported missing people stories were covered in the episode Unnatural World, as well as the local legend of the Bennington Monster, a Bigfoot-like creature said to prowl these forested areas. There are strange places all around the world. That much is true. These are the locations where strange occurrences take place. Things happen that seem to defy all known scientific laws and unsolved mysteries are revealed. Despite the fact that many of these riddles have been answered thanks to technological advancements, the Bennington Triangle continues to stump those who learn about it. 
Six persons mysteriously vanished between 1945 and 1950, one after the other. The first was Carl Herrick in November 1943. Because a corpse was discovered and an established cause of death was given, this occurrence is frequently forgotten in discussions of the Bennington disappearances. 16 kilometers northeast of Glastonbury Mountain, the Triangle's focal point, Carl Herrick was out hunting with his cousin Henry when the two became separated. After some time looking for his cousin, Henry asked the police to help find the other. After some while, searches came across Herrick's body. His ribs had perforated his lung and the autopsy revealed that squeezing was the cause of death. After that, the residents didn't express any special concern. Midi Rivers, an accomplished hiker and hunter, vanished on November the 12th, 1945, two years later. Four hunters were being led by the 74-year-old on a mountain walk. He had travelled the trail numerous times, so he was well familiar with it. He had, nevertheless, left the party before they reached Hell Hollow Brook, close to the Long Trail and Vermont Route. For more than a month, Rivers was sought by firefighters, neighbourhood volunteers, and finally the US Army. One rifle cartridge served as their lone lead. The case is still open because no body was ever discovered. Paula Weldon was the next, 1946, known as The Vanishing Hiker. American college student Paula Jean Weldon, born October the 19th, 1928, vanished December the 1st, 1946. She vanished while hiking Vermont's Long Trail. The investigation was condemned for mistakes by the local sheriffs, which prompted the establishment of the Vermont State Police. Weldon's fate is still unknown, and at the time of her disappearance, there were several other mysterious disappearances in the same region. Weldon graduated from Stanford High School in 1945, and in 1946, Weldon attended Bennington College in North Bennington, Vermont. She lived in Dewey House, one of the more established residence halls on the campus. Today, it is still in use. Weldon decided to find the Long Trail, a hiking trail that was a few miles away from the school, and walk a portion of it on that fateful day. She attempted to enlist some fellow students, but they were preoccupied, so she ventured onto the path alone. Weldon returned to her dorm and changed into strolling attire after ending her shift at the dining hall at Bennington College. 
She was dressed appropriately for the afternoon weather, but not for the nighttime temperature decrease that may follow, indicating that she intended to return before nightfall. She didn't bring a bag, didn't bring any extra clothes, and she didn't bring any extra cash. She didn't seem to anticipate being gone for more than a few hours. Weldon boarded a bus on State Route 67A near the campus entrance and travelled to a stop on State Route 9, close to the Furness Bridge, which connects the towns of Woodford Hollow and Bennington. Local contractor Lewis Knapp, who lived on Route 9 approximately 2.5 miles from the Long Trail, picked up Weldon and drove her there. Weldon then travelled the entire distance on foot or by hitchhiking to the trailhead in Woodford Hollow. Weldon was travelling up the trail while a group of other hikers descended. She approached them and discussed the long trail with them. Weldon then continued to travel north along the path's road-like segment, which is today known as Harbour Road. It was late afternoon when she started the route, and as she neared the end of Harbour Road, the light began to fade. She might have continued into the woods, which were getting darker and darker. Weldon didn't come back to campus. The following morning, Weldon was still gone, leading her roommate to believe that she must have gone to the library to prepare for examinations. The college's administrators quickly began searching the campus. When the county sheriff was called in to assist with the search, the state's attorney for Bennington County was also informed. Weldon's excursion to the Long Trail was found over the following few days when one of the hikers she had spoken to recognised her from the picture in the Bennington Banner newspaper where he worked. Normal life at Bennington College came to a standstill for a few days while staff and students took part in coordinated searches. Numerous volunteers, family members, National Guardsmen and firefighters conducted fruitless searches for Weldon. The long route, its numerous branches and Route 9 between Bennington and Battleboro were the main targets of the ground and aerial searches. The route extends 10 miles to the north to Glastonbury Mountain. The majority of those looking believed Weldon had been disoriented whilst in the woods, whilst other hypotheses began to be entertained when no information regarding her whereabouts was discovered. Alternative theories included the notions that Weldon had been unusually cheery and so had decided to leave in order to start a new life. People speculated that she was preparing to meet a secret lover and elope with him, or that she had been injured and was suffering from amnesia. Darker theories proposed that Weldon may have been kidnapped or killed. The state attorney, 
the county sheriff and the state investigator Almo Frizzoni were tasked with tracking down any leads because Vermont didn't have a state police force at the time of Weldon's disappearance. The investigators and Governor Mortimer R. Proctor were pushed by Weldon's father to enlist more seasoned law enforcement support. Governor Raymond E. Baldwin of Connecticut was contacted by Proctor for assistance. State Police Officer Dorothy Scoville and Connecticut State Police Detective Robert Rundle were assigned to the case. They interrogated anybody who may have seen Weldon that afternoon in December, including people who saw her or believed that they had seen her, as well as anyone who lived along the trail or were merely close. A lumberjack called Fred Cadet, who lived along Harbour Road, was one of the last individuals to see Weldon alive, according to the investigators. When Weldon arrived, Cadet and his girlfriend were having a disagreement. Shortly after, he stormed off in a jealous rage and, based on various statements he made, either went to his cabin and spent the evening alone, or he drove up the travel stretch of the trail where Weldon was heading. He repeatedly lied to police and he became a person of interest in the 1946 investigation as well as the 1952 follow-up. Gaudet allegedly told at least two others that he knew exactly where Weldon was buried within a hundred feet, but afterwards insisted that this was merely idle conversation. This line of inquiry, however, was closed when no signs of a crime having been committed, no body had been found, and no forensic hints had been located. The way the neighborhood's law enforcement handled the disappearance of Weldon drew harsh criticism from her father and several other people. Weldon's father underlined that the ineffective investigation was a result of the lack of a statewide law enforcement organization and the inexperienced local sheriffs. The Vermont legislature created the state police seven months after Weldon vanished. The next case we would like to talk about is the case of James Tedford and his wife Pearl. James E. Tedford was born in Vermont sometime before 1884. Little is known about his early years, but in 1940, he and his younger wife Pearl, who was 28 at the time, were living in Fletchertown in Franklin, Vermont. Neither of them had any reason to simply disappear. But this is what indeed happened. Pearl had taken a drive into town. Pearl Tedford, who had been observed that day on her way to Amoco store in the local community, and according to the neighbours and residents that Ted spoke with, Pearl appeared to be her usual good-humoured self, in good spirits, certainly without any indications of distress or other issues. The police were notified when she hadn't shown up the next day. But despite countless searches, they were unable to locate her. Pearl was nowhere to be found. 
James Tedford had been out for a stroll when his wife had decided to take a ride into town. Initially, he assumed that she had stepped outside for a time because the house was in perfect order and there was even a lunch prepared that she had been making. But by nightfall, Pearl still hadn't returned home, which was quite unlike her. The theory was that she had fled their marriage, but if that were the case, why had she appeared to be in perfect spirits and why hadn't she left a letter or, furthermore, why had she left a partially made lunch behind? Nobody knew. It was a mystery, and Pearl Tedford would never be seen again. This left James Tedford in complete disarray. His life was never the same once his wife had abruptly vanished from it. According to reports, he fell into a profound depression, withdrew from social circles, and became a recluse who almost never left his home and did little more than sit by himself. In 1947, he finally made the transfer to the soldier's retirement home in Bennington, Vermont, where he largely lived alone and had no companions. He only had a few relatives, who resided in St. Albans, Vermont, nearly eight hours away by Bus Route 7, and the untamed Green Mountain Wilderness, which remained James Tefford's life. He would periodically travel to see his family in St. Albans, and in December 1949, he decided that he would spend a few days with them. There was no reason to believe that the trip, which was entirely routine, and from which he had taken the bus on numerous occasions, would be any different. When he arrived at the bus station to board the bus, everything seemed normal. Even though Tedford was his usual gloomy self, his family and fellow travellers would subsequently assert that he had not been acting in any way out of character or out of the ordinary. But James Tedford will now also vanish into thin air at some point along the journey home. When Tedford failed to show up at the retirement community on time, attempts were made to determine where he had gone. It was proven by Tedford's luggage, cash, and other possessions being stowed and abandoned on the bus, as well as by an open bus timetable on the seat, that he had indeed boarded the vehicle. According to both bus staff and the 15 other passengers who had been on the bus, Tedford was absolutely present on the journey. They remember him blissfully sleeping in his seat. According to witnesses, he was so unremarkable, nobody really noticed him missing until the bus arrived at its destination and he was suddenly gone. Given that the bus had not stopped anywhere along the trip, his disappearance became difficult to explain. 
even if he had managed to somehow jump off the bus without anybody noticing. It had been heavily snowing at the time, so why would he have attempted such a stunt? Furthermore, it appeared that there was no way for him to exit a moving bus without anyone noticing. There was only one door, located by the driver. How could he have disappeared so completely? In plain view of a crowded bus full of passengers with so many potential witnesses. Tedford has never been seen again, so we will never know. The next person to disappear was Paul Jepson, 1950. Although not much is known about Paul Jepson's early years, people claim that he had paid the price for being rebellious and for not listening to his mother. Paul Jepson was, by all accounts, a sweet little boy whose mother cautioned him against getting out of the car while she was at work. That happened in Bennington on October the 12th, 1950, when his mother brought him along as she went to the neighbourhood landfill to feed some pigs. Although she thought it wouldn't take long, she ended up being gone for over an hour. This must have felt like an eternity to Paul when he was just eight years old, and perhaps he didn't pay close enough attention to his mother's counsel and left the vehicle. When his mother returned to her truck, she was horrified to see that her child was gone. So, what happened to Paul Jepson? Did he just leave the vehicle while his mother was at work? Did he step outside the vehicle to play? Paul Jepson had vanished. People were called to search for the child, but while they searched, the fear that something terrible had happened increased. He was wearing a bright red jacket that shone out against the greens and browns of nature, so initially there were high hopes that he wouldn't be gone for too long. Nevertheless, he ended up becoming the most recent, unsolved, cold case disappearance in the area. Sadly, Paul's case has very little information. Only one account states that bloodhounds followed him to the nearby roadway where Paula Weldon also allegedly vanished, raising the possibility that he was abducted. The theories grew progressively more sinister as time went on, while Paul's father told the Albany Times Union that it was the lore of the mountains that claimed Paul because the child talked of nothing else for days before his disappearance. Other people blamed his parents for his abduction. Some speculated that Jepson died young at the hands of his parents and became pig food as the case dragged on indefinitely. Was it the lore of the mountains that claimed this child? 
were his parents responsible for his abduction? Was the child abducted by a stranger to never be seen again? Speculation continues to this day, and it further heightens the intrigue surrounding the Bennington Triangle, adding to the unsettling atmosphere of mystery. The next person to vanish was Frida Langer, 1950. Frida Langer was aged 53 when she went camping at Somerset Reservoir in Vermont around two weeks after eight-year-old Paul Jepson vanished. Herbert Elsner, her cousin, and her husband, Max, were with her. Frida was originally from North Adams, Massachusetts, and had a lot of hiking experience. Thus, the region adjacent to Glastonbury Mountain was ideal for her. Frida and Herbert decided to go along the long trail on October the 28th, 1950, and everything went smoothly until Frida slipped into a brook. Soaking wet and uncomfortable, she decided that she would return quickly to the camp and put on dry clothing, catching up with the others later. Frida was last seen returning to the campsite on foot. 300 people searched for the 53-year-old for weeks, but no leads or traces were ever found. If anything occurred, it was assumed to be an accident and Frieda's body would soon be discovered. To give strength to this, Herbert and Max both passed a polygraph examination, even though the discovery left many unanswered issues as time passed. It became a likely possibility that Frida had met her death. Two hunters found Frida's body in May 1951, more than three miles from the family's campsite. The body was badly decayed and in poor condition. Why had her body not been found initially by a 300-strong team? Why was she, in fact, three miles away from her campsite? And how did she pass away? These questions are unanswerable. No cause of death could be determined because of the condition of her remains. Regarding the first query, there is a mystery in and of itself. It would have been simple to find Frida if she had previously visited the region because it is so open. Strangely enough, despite months of intensive searching, no corpse was ever located in the region. If we look over a far longer length of time, the Bennington Triangle has been plagued by numerous additional missing person incidences. According to the Vermonta, Throughout the 1920s and 1950s, up to 40 persons mysteriously disappeared around Glastonbury Mountain. The Bennington Triangle has a peaceful air with a tranquil beauty, but it is said to be haunted by the whispers of the missing. And the mystery doesn't end there. The Glastonbury Mountain at the heart of the Bennington Triangle
is said to be cursed in Native American mythology. A stone concealed in the depths of the mountains that swallows everyone who stumbles upon it is subject of one of the indigenous people's legends. The legend goes on to say that Glastonbury Mountain is feared by nature itself since there is an area that descends into silence and is rarely visited by any living thing. Although these myths and legends shape the tales that would be told in and around the Bennington Triangle, they do not provide any rational explanation as to why people keep dying or going missing. Some claim that a monster killed everyone who went missing in the Bennington Triangle because of what happened to Carl Herrick, whose bones were crushed by something of immense strength. Later, the Bennington monster was described as a big, upright walking creature with black fur that was over seven feet tall. According to Legends of America, Witnesses have stated that the creature resembles Bigfoot or Sasquatch in appearance. Additionally, several visitors to the area have mentioned feeling unusually confused or lightheaded. When everything crescendoed into this weird sort of dizzying confusion, with the words of Robert Singley, speaking to the Bennington Banner. He was lost in the Bennington Triangle when it suddenly turned dark. He says, I thought, where am I? What's going on? Robert Singley claimed that he saw cover beneath a huge maple tree because it was expelling a weird haunting energy. The next morning, he eventually found his way out of the forest. Others, though, weren't that lucky. According to a Vermonter article, the Bennington Triangle has seen the disappearance of up to 40 persons. Is there a monster that lurks in the wilderness there? Could it indeed be the legend known as Bigfoot? But then... How can an elderly man simply disappear from a moving bus packed full of people? Could it be alien abductions, as some people claim, or a time vortex, or a potential gateway to other dimensions? What was the strange, haunting mist that Robert Singley described to the press? Where have all the missing people gone? The mystery remains unsolved. <laughs>